Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. Now here's the show. This new process is orderly, it's safe, and it's humane, and it works. The Biden administration is opening new legal pathways for some immigrants and making it harder for others to get asylum. It's Thursday, January 5th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, two stories about immigration, including a look at how even a wrongful conviction can still lead to deportation. And pianist Marc-Andre Hamlin's take on ragtime. But first, President Biden unveiled some major changes to immigration policy today ahead of a trip to the border this weekend. It's the administration's biggest move yet to respond to an influx of migrants seeking asylum. And it's difficult to sum up in one sentence. Biden says the U.S. will accept up to 30,000 Cubans, Nicaraguans, Haitians, and Venezuelans each month, a new legal pathway for immigrants who have an American sponsor and who pass security checks. But Biden also announced a significant expansion, at least in the short term, of the government's ability to expel people who try to cross the border illegally. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid spoke to Deepa Fernandez about what it all means. It's a busy morning for you because the administration, well, part of what they're announcing is that the pandemic era Title 42, which gave them the right to turn away migrants for public health reasons, these new rules seem to essentially extend the restrictions, even though Title 42 may go away. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, Deepa, what I understood this to be is essentially trying to establish some sort of framework for border management with the assumption that Title 42 will not be here forever. Um, as you suggest, I mean, Title 42 was expected to end. It was put in place to deal with the pandemic. Uh, but really, it, it's been around for quite a bit now, and it's become a way to essentially expel migrants who've crossed the U.S. southern border rather quickly. Um, it's currently hung up in the courts. And so what we're hearing from the White House is that they are preparing to end it. And so therefore, they're creating a system for what will happen next. And so what they've announced today is essentially a a system where they intend to to crack down on uh, illegal border crossings and then allow for limited numbers of people to enter the, enter the country, as you mentioned, from four specific countries, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti. And the way that they're doing this is through a dramatic expansion of the government's parole process and allowing, a, a, I believe, 30,000 people per month from those four countries to apply for this new program. And and those four, just to be clear, it's 30,000 in total. It's not 30,000 Venezuelans, 30,000, yeah. And so talk us through how that is expected to happen because what the president said was he wants to model it on what they've already implemented for Venezuelans. Yeah, so what we're hearing from the White House is that they implemented this program for Venezuela, I believe, back in October. And uh, since then, they saw, I believe, a 90% drop-off in the number of Venezuelans who were attempting to cross the U.S. southern border uh, illegally. They were staying in in Venezuela, applying for this parole process. And so they deem that to be quite a success and are trying now to have this similar program. And so what you heard today from the White House is that this new parole program um, essentially allows people on a smartphone app to apply from their home country if they pass a background check and they do need to have a sponsor in the United States, they would be, then be uh, granted the permission and the work authorization to live here in the United States for two years. 
while we have you here, Asma, we want to just get some of the other basics because the White House said that they are going to be surging immigration judges and asylum officers to the border. Mm-hmm. Now, how big of a difference could that make? Um, well, but this is something that my understanding is we've actually seen happen on a limited scale thus far. I mean, I, I would say I think it's twofold. One is that we haven't seen uh, thus far that make much of a dent. Secondly, the White House has asked for a significant um, increase in funding for the Department of Homeland Security, and they have yet to receive that funding from Congress. And so I do think that there are limited tools that they have. Um, one thing that you know the president said today himself he spoke to is the fact that he intends to visit uh, the U.S. Southern border. He intends to visit El Paso on Sunday. And it's his first trip to the border since he entered the White House. And one of the things he intends to do there, he says, is to meet with local officials, um, speak with border agents, and get a sense of what resources they need, and then make those demands public in the hopes that he could perhaps put some public pressure on uh, members of Congress to pass these additional funds that the White House has been asking for. Okay. He he also spoke directly to people who want to come to this country, essentially telling them not to, to yep. stay where they are and apply through these newly expanding channels. Uh, it's a message that his vice president, Kamala Harris, gave early on in the administration, but migrants often have urgent reasons to leave. They're fleeing violence. Just how practical is this as a solution? I mean, to your point, I, I was really struck by his message. I mean, he said, if you're trying to leave, do not do not show up at the border. Uh, stay where you are. He says that if you try to show up at the border, you will not be eligible to enter through this parole process. It's a message the White House is trying to get out there. But to your point, too, I mean, look, they were asked actually a question at the end of the president's comments today. He was asked about the sort of class differences in the difficulty if people are not able to cross by foot over land, if they're coming in with airplane tickets. You know, does that not make it more difficult for people who don't have those resources. And I don't know that there are clear answers on all of that yet, um, but I think we'll get a greater sense of how this all plays out once the program goes into effect. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Thank you, Asma, for staying on top of all of this for us. Uh, My pleasure. Good to talk with you. We're going to stay with the topic of immigration. Deepa has the story of a man who was deported for a criminal conviction. It was a wrongful conviction that was later overturned. But the immigration system still locked him out of the U.S., something he fought for 20 years. That's after the break. A family in the San Francisco Bay Area has been reunited after 20 years when a wrongful conviction sent a young man to a country he barely knew, the Philippines. Gideon Baena came to the United States as a six-year-old and was a legal permanent resident here. As an 18-year-old, he was a passenger in a car that was stopped by police and narcotics were found. He accepted a plea that amounted to time served, one week of incarceration. Yet that guilty plea led to his deportation, which he has spent the last 20 years fighting from the Philippines. Baena fought his case all the way to the California Superior Court, which overturned his conviction, deeming it unconstitutional. Then his legal team went to the Department of Homeland Security, petitioned for his case to be reopened, and for his status as a green card holder to be restored. This week, Gideon Baena flew into San Francisco airport and into the arms of his family after 20 years of exile due to deportation. Gideon, welcome home and welcome to NPR. Hi, it's good to be home. And we're also joined by Sean Potts, Gideon's attorney, who won this reversal for him. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. 
It's a great day. Gideon, let's start with you. First of all, what was it like to come home after such a long time away and back into a rainy San Francisco? I, I couldn't believe it, to be honest. I, I still can't believe it now. Uh, I, I know one thing. Uh, this is all possible because of Sean. He's far from me all the way. You know, we're going to have Sean tell us about your case in a moment. But can you tell me briefly what happened to you when the U.S. government deported you to the Philippines all those years ago as a teenager? What happened when you landed in Manila? I kind of just stood there. I barely have any family in in, uh, Manila because all my family came to the U.S. Most of them were citizens. Uh, I didn't even know I wasn't a citizen. But um, I just kind of stood there at the airport. Uh, I was homeless for almost a year. I, I heard you spent time in some pretty deplorable slums in Manila because you don't have family. That's right. Um, one of the worst, actually, that I've been here in, in, in the Philippines, which was Tondo. And did you know that? I mean, I imagine you were six when you left the Philippines. I imagine you didn't really have many memories of the city. Or did you know that you were headed to a dangerous slum? Uh, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's the kind of just put you on a plane and they don't inform um, my family uh, barely knew what was going on because they were in California they had me down in Arizona and then they put you on a plane and just kind of drop you off at the airport and that was it and back then communication was a lot harder because they didn't have uh, internet or barely have internet here in the Philippines but yeah mm. and you were a teenager then you know, we rarely hear from people deported about how they're treated once the U.S. sends them back. How did other Filipinos you met treat you? Well, it, it wasn't very welcoming. I barely spoke the language, uh, to be honest. The uh, Tagalog, which was the, uh, our language. So it, it was kind of hard for me to communicate. They took it the wrong way. Uh, it, it was pretty bad. It, it's hard being in a country all alone and you don't speak the language. Mm. What made you think you might have a chance of coming back, of overturning your conviction? And when did you start trying to do this? Well, I, uh, my family started uh, in 2005. and uh, I went from lawyer to lawyer, but nothing happened with those. It wasn't really until about two years ago, I, I was going through the internet and I saw a video of Sean. Uh, it, it was a video about one of his clients. Uh, he fought for him. And right there and then, I was like, I was going to hire this guy. If he can't do it, then nobody can. Mm. All right. Well, let's bring him in right here. Sean Potts is the attorney who who won this case for Gideon. Can you tell us why you took on his case and what the grounds were for having his original conviction overturned? Uh, Sure. Essentially, what we were able to do is identify a constitutional defect in the plea. And then once the conviction was dismissed, then we filed a motion to reopen his removal case. That was the most difficult part because of the so much time had went by. The government did oppose, but we were able to overcome because all the horrific circumstances that Gideon found himself in, uh, being homeless as well as being misadvised for about 20 years from other attorneys. So all of that in combination, we were able to convinced the executive office in immigration review, which is the immigration court, that the original removal order was was based on unconstitutional conviction. 
So I've covered immigration and deportation particularly for almost as long as Gideon was ejected from the country. And it strikes me that very few people get to come back after deportation, Sean. We hear often about wrongful convictions, but we don't hear about the wrongful act of this kind of secondary punishment of deporting someone. Could you say how many others might be in Gideon's situation stuck abroad on a wrongful conviction? I would imagine there are thousands of people because uh, a lot of immigration is federal. So a lot of immigration attorneys, they're licensed in various states. So for example, an immigration attorney in California may not be licensed in California. So they may not explore uh, challenging the the criminal conviction. And so a lot of people who were convicted because of a crime, they're deported and they, a lot of people just give up hope. So I would imagine Mm. there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, you know, over the course of, you know, 20, 30 years. Sean, you must lose a lot of cases or see a lot of clients deported. This one must feel different. It, it, um, over the years, I've done this for 20 years. Over the years, I have cases where we lose those cases and, you know, I, you have to compartmentalize so you can take on the next case. Um, with this, this young man, I, it's very emotional and um, I'm so happy that I was able to help him. And I, um, I see it happen over and over and over again in immigration. I see wrongful removals. Uh, sometimes the immigration law and the criminal state law, they don't catch up with each other. So I'll see wrongful removals. And by the time that the courts identify the wrongful precedent, the person is already removed. And it's kind of, mm. it's a loss. I don't want to say a lost life, but it's, it's a great loss, not just to that individual, but to their families, to their children. And to see Gideon return is just—it's it's beautiful. I, I, I only wish the best for him. And Gideon, you've only just come back. What's your first days been like? I'm exciting. Just trying to think of how I'm going to put my life together again after this so many years. And how do you go about making up for twenty lost years here? Are you making plans? Uh, yes, I am. I'm trying to spend as much time uh, before, you know, going off, finding work. I, I kind of just want to spend a few weeks with family, just going from family to family, letting them know I'm home. Mm, I'm sure they're really happy to see you. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Do you have a story for us maybe about one family member that you're reconnecting with and what that's been like? Um, my mom, she's been there from the very beginning uh, it's kind of hard because of course she's uh, she's getting old <laughs> uh, basically and it, it's hard trying to reconnect with my with, especially with my parents uh, after so many years really it's 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 hard they, bar- they barely know me mm. you've got a lot of making up of time to do I know there's so many <laughs> I don't I don't to be honest I don't even know where to begin yeah well you, you're gonna have to begin by getting a cell phone right uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Some of, the, some of the basics. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, thanks a lot to both of you. And, and really, stay in and touch. We, we would love to keep following your, how, how you I do. Will, I will be uh, getting in touch with Sean. You have a friend here for life, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, you, you turned a life around, Sean. I, uh, this is <laughs> save, the, save very my meaningful. Life. Very meaningful. Yeah. 
We've been speaking with Gideon Baena, who has just returned from the Philippines after 20 years of deportation, and his attorney, Sean Potts, who won the reversal. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up next, Jane Clayson speaks with a renowned pianist who is out with a new album of ragtime songs. Stick around. Ragtime was a popular American music genre of the early 20th century. The king of ragtime was African-American pianist and composer Scott Joplin, but there were many other composers who were forgotten over time. Today we're going to hear about some of those musicians, most of them black, who inspired ragtime tunes written in the 1960s and 70s by composer William Bolcom. Bolcom has written many works for piano, symphonies, and operas, but also cabaret songs and rags. The Complete Rags is the name of the album that came out recently with all of his 27 ragtime numbers. This music is performed by acclaimed virtuoso Canadian pianist Marc-Andre Hamlin. He told me he first took an interest in William Bolcom's music and ragtimes in the late 1970s. I discovered him when I started collecting records as a teenager, and one of his LPs included three of his own rags, and that really, really intrigued me. But I actually met him and got to collaborate with him in 1986 when I was a guest at the Cabrillo Music Festival in California. And uh, I got to play some of his rags. But it's only relatively recently that I uh, got the idea of recording all of his piano rags. He wrote 27 of them over a period of many, many years. Mm. And uh, it's a corpus of American piano music that really hasn't quite gotten its due yet, I feel. I mean, the most popular rag he ever wrote by far is called uh, Graceful Ghost Rag. Let's listen for a moment. Certainly. it about that one that is so mesmerizing it's beautiful to me it's timeless i mean it's one of those tunes that seems like it's always been around you know (laughs) there was never a time when it didn't exist you know i feel that way about a lot of ideas that more established uh, even classical composers have come up with you know but this is another one of those tunes i feel Ragtime fell out of favor in the 1920s. And so it's interesting to think about, you know, Bill Bolcom wrote most of these in the 1960s and 70s when nobody was really paying much attention to this style of music, right? So what prompted him to do that 40 years after its prime? 
The way he got into being interested in ragtime was the discovery of uh, Scott Joplin's opera Tremonitia. And uh, he became just totally beguiled by this music and started trying to um, write something in the style of Joplin. Previously, Bill had only written things that were not uh, tonal, you know, very, very modernistic. But I think the idiom really, really appealed to him. Mm. Let me play Glad Rag, which is the first rag that William Balcom wrote and was inspired by Scott Joplin. You know, it's really incredible for us now to think that at one time, Scott Joplin was a practically unknown name for most of the century, but it's actually true. Scott Joplin's rediscovery really came only in the late 60s. And Bill Bolcom was really one of the key figures in helping us to rediscover this wonderful and essential American composer. There are some tributes on this album uh, to great musicians and composers of the early 20th century, and I want to start by playing one. Here's Yubi's Lucky Day, which is about James Hubert Blake, otherwise known as Yubi Blake. was Yubi Blake, and how is he reflected in this particular piece? Well, with uh, lyricist Noble Sissel, he wrote what I think was one of the earliest American musicals. It was called Shuffle Along, from which came the famous song, I'm Just Wild About Harry. <laughs> and uh, he had a very, very rich uh, performing and composing life, and he actually uh, lived just a few days, I think, beyond his 100th birthday. <laughs> Wonderful pianist, he made tons of recordings, and uh, he developed also a friendship with uh, with Bill Bolcom. Tell us about some of the other composers who were not as famous as Scott Joplin, but were very prolific ragtime authors. I think that the great triumvirate of uh, ragtime composers at the beginning were Scott Joplin, James Scott and Joseph Lamb. James Scott was uh, was black American and uh, Joseph Lamb was actually white. And uh, all three wrote extremely wonderful and tuneful things. But Joplin's music was such a breath of fresh air and it, uh, it was almost a revolution. And uh, something that I think everybody wanted to imitate. And many of these ragtime composers were African American, no? Yes, I would say probably the majority of them. And tell us who was Louis Chauvin, for whom Bill Bolcom wrote an epitaph. Yes, the epitaph for Louis Chauvin is another one of these rags. As a matter of fact, it's the second rag uh, that uh, Bill ever composed. Mm-hmm. 
You know, Chauvin, we only know his music because he collaborated on one rag with Scott Joplin. So his published output was half of one rag, although he, apparently he uh, wrote and improvised many more. And he died apparently very young, so it's a lament upon what could have been. so many tracks I loved uh, on this album. I want to play a few of them. Garden of Eden Suite, The Serpent's Kiss. I want to hear mm -hmm. a bit of that. Here it is. just see the silent movie in here <laughs> in my mind yes and, and you know that uh, figure in the right hand when i was preparing it for recording it just seemed to me that it's a little bit like the a, a serpent's tongue darting in and out The other one I love was Brass Knuckles, where you use the extreme low and high range of the piano. Here it is. Oh, yeah. you want to get up and move. <laughs> this one is actually kind of a joke. He collaborated with William Albright, another wonderful ragtime contemporary composer. As they say, it was an antidote to the over-delicate rags they were writing at the time. They were both writing rags and they were sort of sending them to each other you know, by mail. So at one point they said, oh, let's write something totally outrageous. And it's full of clusters, you know, and keyboard violence. And that's just a chance to uh, just fling yourself all over the keyboard. <laughs> Do you have a favorite on the album? You know, I think California Porcupine is uh, is really quite amusing. Why this one? Well, because it's so wild and it goes all in all kinds of directions, you know. <laughs> But there are so many treasures in the collection that I would urge anyone to just explore them all. Pianist Marc-Andre Hamlin, thank you so much for speaking to us about your album Rags with compositions by William Bolcom. It's such a joy to listen. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jane. This podcast comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today is another great day to peruse hereandnow.org, where you can find more about all of the stories you heard on this podcast and a lot more. Today, we've also got a conversation with one of the local journalists who first raised questions about newly elected Congressman George Santos, who has since been found to have lied about parts of his resume and life story during the campaign. None of the pieces added up. He was very mysterious about where he lived and, and what he was doing. 
To hear that conversation, head to hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by James Mastro Marino, Ashley Locke, and Adeline Sear. Our editors are Jill Ryan and Todd Munt. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto with help from Caleb Green. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producer is Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.